Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. You threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now, you don't talk so loud. Now, you, you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging for your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a rolling stone. Oh, we've gone to the finest school, all right, Miss Lonely. But you know you only used to get juiced in it. And nobody ever taught you how to live on the street. And now you got to get used to it. You said you'd never compromise with the mystery tramp. But now you realize you ain't selling any alibis. You just stare into the vacuum of his eyes and ask him, Do you want to make a deal? How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? You never turned round to see the frowns on the jugglers and the clowns when they all came down and did tricks for you? Never understood that it ain't no good, you should let other people get your kicks for you? You used to ride on the chrome horse with your diplomat who carried on his shoulder a Siamese cat. Ain't it hard when you discover that he really wasn't where it's at after he took from you everything he could steal? How does it feel? Huh? How does it feel to be without a home like a complete unknown? Like a rolling stone. Princess on the steeple and all the pretty people drinking, thinking they've all got it made, exchanging all kinds of precious gifts and things. You'd better lift your diamond ring. You better pawn it, babe. You used to be so amused at Napoleon and his rags and the language that he used. Well, go to him now. He calls you. You can't refuse. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Oh, you're invisible now. You got no secrets to conceal. How's it feel? How's it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a rolling stone. And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 88.5, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And do we have a caller on the line? Hello, are you there, caller? I hope I'm not a caller. I'm a superstar. Who? <laughs> who are... Uh, who? 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 I'm not a caller. I'm Johnny Legend. I'm supposed to be a star. Just because I happen to be on the phone doesn't mean I'm a caller. Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? Yes, please explain, Johnny Legend. Who are you? Uh, if you need an explanation, you're already too late. Well, to me, I'm the most famous. I'm the most famous person you never heard of. I'm the man who started it all, and I'm getting ready to just about end it. To me, you are the guy that put words to Pipeline. I mean, that's all that you got to say. You put words to the song Pipeline. Absolutely, and that still hasn't really 
kind of gotten through to the general public. I'm hoping to get that through, you know, in the next year. So I'm performing it live again. I performed it in New Orleans at Ponderosa Stomp. I'm performing it with my new band, and I have I have a recording, a correct recording of my vocal version of Pipeline that still has not come out yet. There was a there was a very uh, mediocre pedestrian version that came out in the early 90s where we only had an hour or so we didn't really get it down to you know the magnitude of how brilliant it is i you know i even uh, met the uh, the shantes the, the gentleman who recorded the original pipeline uh, backstage at the greek one night and told him about it and they just said have at it man great well, we're actually going to so play... that was kind of music to my heart. We're that's gonna... all I've ever done, actually. We're going to play that version, <laughs> Johnny Legend. I'm like, this, I'm like this lounge singer from the early 60s who had an epiphany one night, and he wrote words to Pipeline. He thought he was going to be set for life. And here it is 40, 50 years later, and he's still doing it in lounges. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's all it's ever come to. Well, also, a... <laughs> Johnny Legend, I'm just going to say, we're going to end the Nerdware to Human Survey Radio Show. I know we've just begun, but I'm going to say we're going to end the Nerdware to Human Survey radio show when we're finished with the interview and we're speaking here to Johnny Legend we're going to end actually with that version of Pipeline that you referred to Johnny Legend Pipeline vocal backed with Mexican Love on the Hillsdale record label from Daly City California Johnny Bartlett that's what we're going to hear at the end of the interview. Are you still there, Johnny Legend? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Let me, just let me know when we're on live or when we're not on live. Oh, no, we're on live right now. We're oh, on live. Right, right. Okay, yeah, Bartlett lives a few miles from me now because I'm up in uh, northern California up here in Alameda right next to Oakland and... Uh, and what's that other one? Berkeley, Berkeley, like my, uh, my like my famous uh, female wrestler, La Feminista, the bra, the bra burning bitch from Berkeley. And yes, we um, must also say that Johnny Legend, you put the words to Pipeline, and you also captured the woman's wrestling title by wrestling women. I mean, that is all you got to know about Johnny Legend as well. The woman's wrestling yeah, title. Yeah, and, and I did that before anybody else. That was a world's record. That was uh, back in 1995 when I won the title, and uh, at that point, no one had ever even challenged the women's champion to a match and i said i wouldn't step in the ring with her unless she put up the belt and she actually beat me several times before i was able to pull a few tricks and win the title from her and i'm proud to say i still have that title to this day it's the aiwa alliances the world's women's championship i'm still uh, friends with the girl i defeated uh, it was a it was a very prestigious title up until that time, and uh, and I I actually took on several challengers, and then I just kind of retired with the title. Uh, and a few years later, a few other people tried the same stunt. I think WWE tried it, you know, but but nothing matched with the the, the grandeur of what I did. And as you know, I worked a lot with Andy Kaufman, but the big difference with me was Andy used to challenge women out of the audience at clubs, like drunken bitches, you know, or, or women who would come up and wrestle them. I actually ended up in the ring with with very accomplished veteran female wrestlers. Uh, so I was kind of proud of all that. I, you know, I lost a lot of matches and got my ass whipped quite a few times, but I did win the title. Johnny Legend put words to Pipeline, captured the woman's wrestling title. You're the Rockabilly Rasputin, and you have Spike Jones's suit and Freddie Blassie's jacket as well. Yeah, Blassie's pants and and jacket and uh, several other items of clothing. What about Tor Johnson's? Coffin from Plan Nine. It's and funny, was... you're the second one to ask me that lately. Uh, I got no. The coffin I got was from the movie The Unearthly. Uh, if you look at the movie, you'll see a scene in there where they put a guy in a, in a kind of crummy wooden coffin and put him into the ground. And I was over at Tours one day, and I saw that sitting in the backyard. And I said, "Oh my God, Tour, what's that?" He goes, "Oh yeah, that's from The Unearthly. I've been meaning to throw it out." 
And I said, well, Tor, you know, do you mind if we take it off your hands? Sure, it's a piece of junk. So we went and got the station wagon. You know, we were in junior high at the time and uh, got the coffin and took it home and used it in our own home movies and everything. But what happened is it was rotted and it was crumbling. And after about a year or two, our parents just made us throw it out. You know, there was no, uh, we couldn't sell it on eBay or anything at the time. So we kind of had to let it go. There wasn't much left to it anyway, but that's what happened to Tor's coffin. Johnny Legend, was it easy to get stuff like that back then, you know, in Hollywood back lots and stuff, versus today? Like, for instance, Forrest Ackerman, rest in peace, he passed away. What happened to all his stuff that he had? Oh, I'm sure his stuff is in good hands. I'm still very close friends with the people who were with him. You know, I I, I finally became a very good friend of his over the years, and I'm very close to people who were with him right up to the end and were watching over all of his stuff. So I'm sure all of his stuff has been very well handled by people who knew, you know, who knew him, Tim Sullivan, John Landis, people like that. Uh, there's a lot of people that were very close. I went to his... Uh, he had a celebration instead of a funeral at the Egyptian theater, so we all went to get, you know, everybody got together there, everybody from the past, present, and future. Ray Bradbury was there, just pretty much everybody, for, you know, covering decades of his life were all there, and we watched clips and told stories about Forey, and it was, you know, a great, great all-day and into-the-evening uh, affair back in 2009. Johnny and, Legend, uh, what about... I haven't, you know, I haven't felt compelled to check where each and every item has gone, but in answer to your earlier question... It was, I guess, easier back then to get some of these things because nobody was looking for them. I wrote that article about the day I went to the Project Unlimited uh, auction with only $10 in my pocket, and I walked away with about five or more prime items from, from films and TV shows. <coughs> you know, I had, the, I had the garbage eater costume from the mice, an episode of Outer Limits. Uh, I had the full-body costume I got for $3.50. I had one of the Xanti Misfits. One of the animated ants, I got that for 75 cents. I got the snakeheads from Medusa and Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. And uh, I had the claw from the creature and Jack the Giant Killer, and I got all that for $10 just because I only had $10, and I was watching my money and, and trying. You know, there were people bidding a lot higher on other items, but I was trying to go for things that I could reasonably actually get. Johnny Legend, we began an Ardwar to Human Serviette radio show with a recording of Like a Rolling Stone by Sebastian Cabot. What can you tell the wow. people about that? Because that kicks into your TV noir thing that you had a while back in San Francisco, right? Just a, yeah, just a month or so ago. Sebastian Cabot uh, started in the episode of Checkmate I showed, which was called The Human Touch, uh, featuring guest star Peter Lorre, one of his last great parts. I did a, I did a seven-night series, and that was... Uh, on Monday night, my birthday, we had Legends of Horror Go Noir, so we had all horror stars starring in TV noir episodes of series. And, yeah, I was a kind of Sebastian Cabot fan. Uh, uh, in fact, I think, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he passed away around the same time Elvis did. Am I, am I right about that, or was it John Denver? <laughs> I think it might have been John Denver when, when uh, the same week Sebastian Cabot passed away, and I would start giving these heartfelt eulogies in a club to somebody, a great person who just left us, and people in the audience would look at me, you know, like he's talking, what is he talking about, John Denver? And I'd do this whole eulogy without mentioning the name, and then finally I'd say, Sebastian Cabot, this one's for you, buddy, and I'd wink at him up in the sky. It's nice that he left us with that great version of that Dylan tune, like a rolling stone. You know, you got to look for that almost nobody knows about. There's a guy named Hebrew Rogers, who I worked with for a while back in the late 60s. Uh, he was on Original Sound Records, and he did a soul version of Like a Rolling Stone. 
And he was friends with Preston Epps of Bongo Rock fame, and he and I had a salt and pepper act we did for a while. We performed at Chino Prison together and a couple other places. But uh, he has a he had a totally soul Motown type version of like a Rolling Stone that didn't exactly make it as a hit. But that would be something definitely to look up unless unless you've actually heard of it before. Johnny Legend, do people ever try to stop these TV shows and movies that you're unearthing from being shown? And do any of the people involved come out? Like you did a TV noir in San Francisco. Do any of the actors involved just happen to show up? Oh, my movie's playing. And they show up without you inviting them. What has the reaction been? Has anybody tried to stop all this stuff? No, no. No one's tried to stop anything, which is good. Every, you know, uh, getting the message out that, that, that we're there, we're doing the shows. Uh, if we were doing this in L.A. and Hollywood, I could probably get several of the people who are still with us uh, that appear in the episodes to show up. up. Up here in San Francisco, there aren't really too many around. I've, every time I do one of these shows, I start thinking, is someone, are any of these people up here, could, could we get in touch with them? But they're just not really up in this general area, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take showing the thing in, in, in probably L.A. To, 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 un- to, dig up, to unearth a lot of these people who are still with us. I show a lot of shows with, uh, I'd have to think about it, Ruta Lee, uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, James Drury, you know, a lot of people who are still around. So it would be nice to dig up a bunch of them when I'm showing these programs. What was the Betty White stuff that you were showing Johnny Legend? Well, I put out a DVD a year ago, December 2010, called Betty White in Black and White. And that's a very fascinating uh, three-hour collection of, of, of fairly rare uh, appearances of Betty, that Betty White did back in the 50s. She had two TV series, uh, Life with Elizabeth and Date with the Angels, but she also did two variety shows live, one in 1954, one in 1958. And I put, uh, I put a whole lot of uh, material from those variety shows mixed in with their two series. And uh, so when it came time for this birthday special, it's coming up Monday night, you know, it's airing on NBC uh, Monday, they came to me because I ended up kind of being the guy who, who sort of, I guess I'm kind of the, the man who has all of Betty White's 50s TV appearances, if you know what I mean. I'm kind of the number one source of all that now. So I was very privileged. I, got, I came up with a couple clips that they're going to use on the special, which is Monday night, which is three nights from now, I guess. Where did you get the prints for that Betty White stuff there, Johnny Legend? Well, I, you know, I've been doing this for since uh, the late 70s now, collecting and finding stuff. And uh, the day after she, it was funny, it was the day after she hosted uh, Saturday Night Live back in early 2010 on a Sunday. I sat down and I said, I wonder if I could come up with a really unique Betty White thing. Because that's a little more mainstream than what I usually do, as you know. And within 90 minutes, I'd, I'd made phone calls, I'd gotten on the internet, I just started sniffing around, and I came up with, I knew I was on my way to having at least a three-hour DVD, so I went ahead and, and put it together. There's no way to describe it, I've just been doing it for so long, I know where, I know where the bodies are buried and, and where to look. But how about now, with stuff turning up on YouTube? Are you finding any stuff on YouTube and then trying to track down who uploaded it? Because there's some interesting stuff turning up on YouTube, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's some interesting things. There's some things I, yeah, that were, where, I've, where I've actually done that. I've tried to find the source because they had to come from somewhere. I've tried to use stuff from YouTube a couple of times, but it's, it's pretty hard to do. You know, once you, once you transfer it over and try to put it onto a DVD, the quality starts to suffer, you know, immediately. So that's a very tricky business. And we're speaking here. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm always looking on YouTube. Uh, you know, usually I can find the things that are on there, and every once in a while, uh, my friend and I here were just looking at something today on YouTube. We don't know where it came from. A, a clip of Lon Chaney at a fair, probably what, Jim, back in the 50s or 60s? Yeah, somebody's home movies, uh, local 
small, you know, small town carnival, and Lon Chaney Jr. showed up and made an appearance there, and they've got shots of it mixed in with their home movies, riding the roller coaster and everything. And if anybody, now, is, we don't know who, we don't know where that came from or who's got it, but it's 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 there. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you, Johnny, and give you some rare stuff, they can contact you at. Yes, johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com. I'm going to say that several times if I remember. That is my direct email address. I have no problem with people emailing me and asking questions about anything and everything I've got here available. Just a second. Okay. Um, You know, I've put out 62 DVDs in the last few years. If you have any questions about those, I've resurrected my two CDs, and I have those available now. Everything's autographed, comes with 8x10 color uh, photos. You can also look me up on Facebook. You don't have to be a Facebook friend. You can look at my wall. You can see photos of me. You can see my DVD blog. And then when you want to ask me questions or look for any of this, you go to johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com. And just for the people out there who might be a little slow, it's J-O-H-N-N-Y-L-E-G-E-N-D-R-O-C-K-S at gmail.com. And Johnny Legend is here live yeah. on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. And if you listeners of CITR have any questions for Johnny Legend about anything rock and roll or movie related, or actually sex as well, Johnny knows a lot now about sex. I've got sex. a couple of questions I was going to ask you. This might impress you. It is hard to believe it's been 11 years since since we spoke on uh, our last radio interview. But real quick, uh, do you remember who was clogging? up the airwaves uh, during the last time I was waiting in the wings to come on the air and do an interview with you? Do you remember which uh, forgotten celebrity was uh, on the air talking to you? Well, I remember a few things were causing some trouble. I wore you out, and then you didn't get to go to the burlesque. You wanted to check out burlesque. I wore you out because we did like three interviews in a row. And then there's something about Robert Plant as well. Wasn't there something going on there too? But Robert Plant? Yeah, that was a different story, but believe it or not, this guy named Tommy Lee was, I believe you were interviewing him and I was waiting to go on the air with you back 11 years ago, if you remember that at all. Oh, yes, Tommy Lee of The Crew. Yes. Have, yeah. you, have you encountered him since at all? Does The Crew no, ever no, pop never up? never have. Never have. Never in it. And back then, I believe Bill Castle was still alive, and now he's gone. And I never got to run into him when I was out there in, your, in, in Vancouver to go over that whole RCA uh, story, which is the next uh, trivia question I have for you. A um, couple more. This one, who's who's the one uh, person who recorded a Beatles song before the Beatles and got it released, you know, got it into major release before the Beatles did, and it was one of their own songs, and it wasn't written for another artist? Yes, how, did, how did Johnny Legend beat the Beatles to their own tunes? How did you do it, you Johnny Legend? You that one yourself, okay. How did Johnny Legend do that? How did you do that, Johnny Legend? Um, it's a long, interesting story, which I'm hoping to sell to Rolling Stone or somebody someday. But to try to, and it would take up probably the whole, uh, the whole interview to get the whole story. But what happened is my bass player, Ron Osgood, from my first band in high school, The Seeds of Time, he got a hold of that charity album that John Lennon put out doing Across the Universe. And we, and, uh, he got into trouble at work one day. And he, and he, and he, and he used it as an excuse to keep his boss from firing. And he brought up the idea of, hey, what do you think would happen if someone went, hit a recording studio and, and recorded that and got it out before the Beatles? He was just about to get fired for goofing off at work because he'd been caught ten times before. And his boss looked at him and said, boy, you know something, Lon? That sounds like a hell of an idea. How much would something like that cost? Then within an hour, I got this panicky phone call with, you know, with the whole story. How can we do, can we actually do this? Blah, blah, blah. Within, so later that night, we, I was digging up a recording studio and people to go in to record it. And within a week or so, we hit the studio, recorded our own version of the song. Remember the Beatles, we knew we'd eventually record it, but they just hadn't done it yet. 
And then we made a demo, took it to RCA. Gary Usher jumped on it, uh, uh, brought in Bill Cowsill, unfortunately, to produce it. And uh, so we did a re-recording at RCA that was so kind of messed up that uh, even though we beat the Beatles to the punch, it still wasn't a hit, thanks to Usher and Cowsill's kind of maiming of the, of the song, uh, even though our original demo and idea was a perfect idea. And all these years later, you've been thinking about giving a copy to Paul McCartney, right? Love to, yeah. Have you ever... That's on, YouTube, uh, that's on YouTube now, too. You know, that RCA version that we released across the universe, and our band name was Lightmyth, L-I-G-H-T-M-Y-T-H, and that's readily available on YouTube now. You can hear that version. <coughs> and if anybody has any uh, questions for Johnny Legend, it is 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. We're live here on CITR with the Rockabilly Rasputin Johnny Legend. I mentioned sex. The last time I saw you, I think, Johnny Legend, was at one of those rock and roll shakedowns in Vegas, I think, in 2001, and you gave me a porno. What porno did you give me, and have you made more pornos? Oh, one second, huh? Johnny Legend's live on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. I gave you... Oh, yeah. Uh, how long ago was that in Vegas? Because, uh, I, yeah, I, that had to be... Uh, 2000 and... 90s? 2000s? It was a few days after 9-11. It was one of the shakedowns in 2001. Okay, let me think. Not, it wasn't Viva Las Vegas. It was, uh, was it the first shakedown at the Gold Coast, or was it the second one that was in a movie theater that was kind of a, an aborted uh, affair? The aborted one, yes. Okay, yeah, I had just made a, a VHS called Sex Mex, Mass Mexican Sex Wrestling, starring uh, El Nimpo Psychedelico and El Lesbo Mysterioso, and then in 2007, when we started up the new DVD companies, we retitled it Nympho Libre and uh, put it out on DVD. So that's read out there. That's another one of the DVDs. It's out of print now. You can get that directly from me at johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com, along with my original. Uh, I've only made two of these triple X-rated things over the years. One was Teenage Cruisers in the late 70s, the first and only triple X-rated rockabilly movie. And then Nympho Libre, uh back in the period you're talking about. That's right about when it was first made in 2001, which is when that shakedown was. Now you, it was yeah, it was, it was really shortly after 9-11. Now, you hired John Nawad Holmes. What was it like hiring John Nawad Holmes? Actually, I knew John Holmes. Uh, I was just musing over some old anecdotes about him recently. Actually, he appeared at Teenage Cruisers courtesy of some footage we borrowed from somebody. That was back when you could go out and borrow scenes from other films. <laughs> or, you know, and in that case, a friend of ours had made another movie that had Holmes doing a big underwater pool scene and all that. So he actually just loaned us uh, the negative for that scene, and I went back and shot wraparounds and, and, and fit it into Teenage Cruisers. I did that with two or three scenes just to get the, the complete running time on the movie. Johnny Legend, you were a... So, I, so just to make it that straight, I knew Holmes back then, and we were always talking about making films together. And actually, I had some very fascinating projects uh, I wanted to do with them. I wanted to do a remake of H.G. Wells' Things to Come, starring him. And it was, and I was saying, John, and the campaign said, John Holmes is one of the things that comes in H.G. Wells' Things to Come. <laughs> and uh, I had a whole interesting plot line worked out and all that. And uh, and we were trapped one night in San Antonio together. Uh, that's another long story. I was on the road with uh, Teenage Cruisers, and Ray Campy and his Rockabilly Rebels were playing in San Antonio, and John Holmes was there to make personal appearances at the local theaters, but the theater owner had locked him out of the apartment building because he was afraid Holmes would be there with his wife. 
So I ran into him hanging out in front of the building, and I already knew him, so we hung out for the rest of the night and hit the clubs and everything. Johnny so, Legend on the Nardwarda Human Serviet Radio Show. And Johnny, you were out quite about all over America in the 60s and late 70s, or was it maybe late 60s and early 70s? You were a checker. What's a checker? You were a checker. Yeah, that was a very brief thing in the early 70s. It, it, it happened, uh, you know, the first job I went out on was a few days before Nixon resigned, so that's the one way I keep track of it. Uh, what happened is I, was, I, I found out that friends of mine from high school were going out and working as checkers, which is an old-fashioned thing going back to the 30s and 40s where you're kind of sitting in the theater with a, with a clicker in your pocket. Uh, your, the studios used to send out checkers, and you would basically count the people coming into the theater uh, so they would get it. So the so the studio back in L.A. would get the correct count of how many people actually came in. So these people I knew were hiring old friends of mine from high school to do it, paying them fifty dollars a day, which back then was a lot of money. You know, it was seven days a week, and you'd go off to some other part of the country, strange town. You'd have to get your own hotel room, and it was it was a real Kerouac period for me because I I was on the road. I had a lot of adventures. Uh, Made a lot of uh, met a lot of friends and weird women in strange towns, you know. So that's what being a checker was, and it, it actually I, I actually met a lot of people uh, that helped help. I kind of learned the reality of di- film distribution because I was around other parts of the country meeting distributors, and I understood what people meant when they did said states' rights and and, and you know and dealing direct with theaters. I, I learned the reality of film distribution as opposed to sitting in Hollywood going, gee, I hope somebody puts out my movie, you know, because most people in the business don't understand anything physically about distribution, but that's when I learned it. Johnny and it Le- helped me a lot years later when I made movies like Teenage Cruisers, because I could go back and, and book it into areas myself all over the country without having to have a parent company to do everything. Johnny Legend, what about the handicapped swingers club that you were a part of? I wasn't a part of that. Well, I don't know where you read that. <laughs> or you participated I was, in. I was I was living in, in Florida for a couple of years in 2005 and six in a little town called Aventura, and they had a lot of the old-fashioned local advertising spots on the, on the local TV channels, and they had this one priceless spot. For, you know, there's this woman in a leopard skin jacket, and then they pull back, and you see she's in a wheelchair. And it was a it was a local handicapped swingers club, and they had their own TV spots saying, "Come on down and join the fun." And they showed other handicapped swingers at a bar having drinks and and having a great time, and they were looking for other handicapped swingers to join. I've never been handicapped, so <laughs> I couldn't swing that way. But I thought that was, I, I mentioned that in an interview or something somewhere that that was one of the priceless things I saw when I was in Florida. Johnny Legend, you do pop up in interesting places. And since I talked to you last, all those years ago, a lot has been reissued. And as I mentioned, YouTubed. Where have you popped up? Like, you showed me an example of you popping up in a Batula Clark video. And you can be seen, you, Johnny Legend, we're speaking here live to Johnny Legend, the Rockabilly Rasputin. You can be seen smelling smelling Petula Clark in a video, and you're, like, touching her, and she's touching you. Please explain, where have you popped up? Okay, you, well, you want me to start with that one? Uh, because that's one of the things that had a very profound impact on me. That was December 1965. I was still in high school. And uh, once again, my bass player, Lon Osgood, and I had our homemade Sonny Bono vests on, and we were at the taping of the big TNT show, which, by the way, I sell on DVD. I've got the only good version in the world. And Phil Spector's wife even uh, uh, verified that for me. Uh, 
And we were, I was at the entire taping of the TNT show, so I was hanging around Phil Spector a lot. And I was just a kid from high school, but Petula Clark in the middle of downtown went way out of her way to come way down over to the right to a weird part of the audience and sing a chorus of downtown to me. If you look at that clip on YouTube, it's at exactly the one minute and 30 second mark. And I'm the skinny kid on the right, and the other guy next to me is my bass player. And the funny thing is, she did three takes of that. You know, it was like, it was a very troubled shooting. Unlike the Tammy show, the TNT show had a lot of trouble technically. And she had to do three takes of just downtown spread over a period of an hour or so. And each time she did it, she did, she came over to the exact same spot and sang that chorus to me. And that was one of the early things in my life that kind of gave me a spark, thinking maybe there's something special about me, or maybe I should start looking for some way to sneak into the music and film business. And people because, can see uh, that right now if they want. That's from the big TNT show, just and, so you know. And so Petula Clark TNT show downtown, that's what it's titled on YouTube, isn't it? Yeah. If people want make sure you get the one from Big TNT Show, because there's more than one version of her singing downtown. This one is from 1965, and it, it is from the Big TNT Show. It's in black and white shot on film. And you can, and, around uh, a minute 30, you can see Johnny Legend, who we're speaking to now on an Ardwarty Human Serviette radio show, smelling, smelling Petula Clark. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? You bet I'm there, Nardwar. Go ahead to Johnny Legend, caller. Big fan of Nardwar, the Hermione Serviette. Radio show. Awesome. Johnny Legend, you are a legend. You truly personify the name. Listen, uh, I acquired uh, the clapboard from uh, John Carpenter's movie, The Thing, which was shot in uh, Alaska. It was shot in Hyder and part of Stewart. And uh, in my travels, the most strange thing is I'm a big horror fan. Uh, I ran into a guy in, in Ladysmith named Julian, last name I won't mention, but he was the art curator for Vincent Price, caller? and he I, lives in Ladysmith. Caller, I made a mistake. I cut off Johnny Legend. Hold on one um, sec. Let me just sure. relink to Johnny Legend. Hello, Johnny Legend. Are you there? Oh, yeah. I you must have gotten so excited you somehow disconnected us because it I, just went dead here. I disconnected you, and then now I disconnected ah. the caller. So, caller, please phone back 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR to Johnny Legend. And, caller, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead, caller, to Johnny Legend. Johnny Legend. You are a legend. You personify the name. Thank you. And uh, I want to tell you a little story. I was, uh, I'm a cameraman. I was up in Hyder. And I ran into a guy uh, who actually was a guide on John Carpenter's movie, The Thing, which was shot in Hyder and Stewart, which is okay. the <laughs> northern port in B.C. Uh, in that trip, we actually headed down island filming. We ended up in Ladysmith. And I ran into this man, a, a dapper gentleman named Julian, his last name I mentioned. He was the art curator for Vincent Price. Are you familiar with that man? Uh, I don't think so, no. Is he is he in Canada, this guy? He he lives in Ladysmith. He's a really uh, a low-key guy. But I, initially, I, I didn't really take it serious. But, uh, in fact, he was and is or uh, was the curator of art for Vincent Price. The clapboard oh, okay. from the thing came into my possession um, uh, because the guy liked us, and uh, he told me I could never sell it. So it actually sits in my studio with uh, the writing. It's in a wooden clapboard back in those days. But uh, I really appreciate what you're doing, and uh, it's okay. most awesome. The caller, now that we have a I, uh, contact you? I am a, you know, I am a pretty big fan of Vincent Price. I don't know if you saw my 50th anniversary uh, special edition of House on Haunted Hill, where I put out not only the best version of the movie that's ever been out, but I also put on uh, 90 minutes of bonuses, including 50 minutes of Golden Age Price, which is all 
priceless clips of Vince back in the 50s and 60s doing the Red Skelton show and things. And it also has the brainwashing of John Hayes, which is one of the two or three best things I think he ever did in his life. It was on an old anthology series called Reader's Digest, and not too many people know about that. Right. Do you have that stuff for sale? Yeah, that's out. That's uh, you can get it from me. Uh, just go to, go to my uh, email? just email me, and it's uh, you can go to Facebook. It's one of my regular releases. It's kind of sold out, but I have it because I have special <clears throat> 2011 and 12 autographed editions of, <clears throat> of every one of my DVDs. So, but if you want to look up the artwork and everything, you just go to Amazon and uh, type in House on Haunted Hill 50th Anniversary Edition. And Johnny, Johnny the- Nardware, thank you, Nardware, you're awesome. Well, Keep th- that up, buddy. Well, well thank, thank you, caller. You, my friend. Caller, Take I was care. I was just going to say. Call Caller, and yep. I just want to make sure, because I want to ask a question for you, caller, because I was just wondering, Johnny, the caller said he has the clapboard for the thing. Now, have you, wow. have you encountered many clapboards, and can you tell the caller anything about the thing? I No, I don't know too much about the thing, uh, other than that it exists, and that there's another new uh, remake that's supposed to be even worse than Carpenter's, that's although right, I didn't yeah. think Carpenter's was that bad. I, I'm just laughing in, in terms of the original of course, I, I also think the, the remake of Assault on Precinct 13 that somebody else made is, is possibly the single worst remake ever made, and that wasn't made by Carpenter. It was a remake of one of his great movies. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about the thing. Uh, I just know clapboards. You know, we used to make fun of them in our home movies in the early 60s. We would do the clapboard, and then we'd accidentally clap the person's nose or whatever who is, who is supposed to be doing the next scene. So that's pretty much what I know about clapboards, and I don't know too much more about the thing. Well, thank except, you. Except, except that Carpenter, I mean, except that Carpenter made a lot of other films in, in the ensuing years that make the thing look like Citizen Kane. How's that? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks so much for phoning in, caller. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do 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 loot do. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for Johnny Legend, the rockabilly... Okay, we never... And one of the things I didn't finish when we were talking about the Petula Clark thing that I'm very proud of is within a year... Uh, of the time that happened when she sang Downtown to me, December 1965, at the old Moulin Rouge, the club then went under, uh, underwent a transformation and became the Hall of Blue, which was the hip mid-60s club in Hollywood. I actually thought that was the biggest club in town, not more than Pandora's Box and the other clubs that are in the whiskey, which are better remembered. But within less than a year, I had formed my own band. We went there, won the Battle of the Bands, and actually secured a weekend uh, gig at the club which is the same place where I'd been, uh, you know, a kid in the audience with Petula Clark singing to me maybe six, seven months earlier. And like I say, it was actually happier later. I was actually a bona fide rock and roll guy playing at that club. So I moved pretty quick back then. That was in the golden 1966 year, you know, where a lot of things happened. Yes, you love the Sunset Strip. And speaking of which, are you the first person to have actually operated on Dennis Wilson? You operated on Dennis Wilson, <laughs> didn't you, Johnny Legend? Well, that's that little anecdote I mentioned in that in that email I sent out. I doubt if I was the first by any means. It was the first time I actually spent a day with Dennis. Um, late 70s, he was living a few blocks away from me. Uh, with several people uh, right on the boardwalk in Dennis, and everyone was. Uh, Dennis apparently had gotten his hands on Pencil Neck Geek, which is the other thing I'm very famous for, which he'll probably put on my tombstone. And apparently he was out one day on his yacht with. Uh, who, which one was he with from Fleetwood Mac? Uh, Chris, Chris, I'm always forgetting which one he was going with. 
um, it was one of the two girls, and they were they apparently were feeling no pain and telling geek jokes all day. And then Dennis got a hold of, uh, believe it or not, uh, one of my early uh, the rough rough dubs of my uh, my first album, and it had Mexican Love on there before it was finished or mixed or anything at the Rolling Rock the Rolling Rock version. He somehow got that and was obsessed with it. So he said, "You got to come meet Dennis. Come on!" And so I went down to meet Dennis, and I thought I was going to meet you know the great Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And so I walked in, and the first thing he says is, Johnny, listen. Listen, Johnny, Mexican love. He was saying Mexican love about every 15 seconds. And then he said, Johnny, if you can, if you, he said, if, if you can, if you can front us to some VO, I know a guy will front us some OJ, which he meant if I could get some vodka, he could get us some free OJ. So he was walking around Venice all day in his bare feet, and then at three in the morning, like I said in that anecdote, he suddenly lay his foot on, on this big wooden table and handed me this butcher knife. And said, Johnny, listen, you're the only person left in this planet I trust. Out of my band, not none of these so-called friends. Only you. You're the only person I trust. He had a very guttural voice at that point, and he handed me this butcher knife. And he said he wanted me. He said he'd gotten a lot of glass on his foot over the course of the day, walking around barefoot. And he wanted me to go in and get it out. And this was a little strange because this was the day I met him, you know. And it was like three in the morning, so <clears throat> I sort of poked around a little. And he said, "Oh, I won't feel anything. Don't worry, I don't feel anything in, the, any, in my legs at all." So, so I poked around a little, and I and I sort of pretended to pull some glass out. And I said, "There you go, Dennis." You know, and I put the knife down, and uh, I managed to get out of the situation. And then, uh, then I dealt. Then we had several other encounters over the next several years, but that was the first day. And Johnny Legend, <laughs> you also had an encounter with his dad, Murray Wilson. I never asked you about this, Murray Wilson. I love the sun rays, Murray Wilson. What was he like, Murray Wilson, in person? I never really. If you read my story, I never really had any dealings with Murray. What happened is when we won the Battle of the Bands at the Hall of Baloo, we got a gig with the with the sun rays. So I'm assuming Murray was hanging around backstage, but I never was introduced to him or anything. I know Brian Wilson was there. And what, what I mentioned in that little story I wrote was that back in uh, late 65, when we had our very first band, our first manager was Sheldon Greenfield, whose daughter was Dennis Wilson's first wife. And, uh, and that was a totally separate activity from the fact that the next year we actually won the Battle of the Bands, and, and we were there with the Sunrays. But I, Dennis, I mean, Brian actually came to our first recording session before any of this other stuff happened. But by the time we played with the Sunrays and all that, uh, I, I, no one introduced me to Murray, you know, so there were always a lot of people at that club, uh, and I never was introduced to him formally, so I didn't really know Murray. I got to know Dennis probably too well in the late 70s, early 80s, and I only saw Brian those couple of times, but Dennis was became like a, you know, a part of my life in the late, in that late period. And you only encountered Charlie Manson at parties, or you think you did, or you encountered some of his... No, I never encountered him. Uh, basically, the guy who did that interview with me kept asking me about any connection to Manson and those girls, and I knew that back in the time period, uh, late 60s or whatever, we were living in the valley not too far from them, and I was told a few times over the years that some of those girls came to parties that we had, or that I went to parties where th that they were at, of course, I didn't know who they were then, and they weren't famous, and they hadn't been arrested yet. So that was, I mean, I'm telling the truth on these stories. That's the only connection. If I was ever at an event, it's not impossible, because I used to travel around a hell of a lot, and I'd go to parties that were packed with lawyers, health angels, every, you know, rock stars, everybody under the sun. So it's not that unlikely that I was at a party that, with Manson before he got popped. 
but I I have no memory of it. And uh, you know, if he if he if he did if he was at a party, he didn't make enough impression on me so that I remembered him. Johnny Legend six zero four eight two 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 four eight seven six zero four UBC CITR. If anybody has any questions for Johnny Legend, live on an Ardware Human Serviette Radio Show from Manson. All the way to Star Trek, DeForest Kelly. You've met them all. You've dealt with them all, or you've chronicled them all. DeForest Kelly yes, the- bones on suicide theater. Can you explain a bit about that, Johnny Legend? Oh, that was priceless. That was a little. That was the thing. I just showed that again here in San Francisco. as, as my first evening of uh, TV noir called "Dude, Where's My Noir?" <laughs> that was my opening night title. Uh, Back in the very early 50s, they used to make these little three, four-minute long mini-dramas, and that was the entire running time with opening, you know, with the title and closing credits, and they would syndicate these around the country. I don't know how the hell they made any money on them. They had names like Little Theater, and this was just a little thing about a guy who tries to commit suicide, played by DeForest Kelly, and in the mid-80s when I started Rhino Video, and I was doing a uh, World's Worst TV Shows, uh, I put I put that on and renamed it Suicide Theater, and it's one of my proudest achievements because now it's gone into all the record books of Suicide Theater. I, I think it's you know in, in reference books, the Malton book, places like that. You'll see it referred to, and I've always thought it was kind of hysterical because how would somebody swallow the idea that there was once a series on called Suicide Theater, and they're looking at it as if I just took a clip with DeForest Kelly off of it, whereas I actually created the whole thing. So, you know, can you imagine that in the early 50s there being a series called Suicide Theater where each week someone decides to commit suicide? I guess stranger things have happened. But at the time we did that, some people I know were friends with DeForest Kelly, so they brought it to him, and, and someone actually took photos of him watching Suicide Theater at home. And if you Google DeForest Kelly watching Suicide Theater on the Internet, it comes up and you can see the photos of him laughing and watching it. And he sent me a big thank you message and an autographed photo thanking me for disco- rediscovering Suicide Theater and putting it on the map. So I was, I was very proud of that. That's one of those little things I've done over the years, you know. It's John- kind of, I, I like it when I recreate history, if you know what I mean. Johnny Legend, where did you get the yellow striped suit you wore on the John Stewart show. Yeah. That really is the original Spike Jones outfit that you'll see on all the old album covers. And if you look at the old film clips and shows from, the, especially the TV shows from the 50s and like that, he wears it a lot. And in one of the more famous album covers, there's a multiple exposure of him in that suit. And uh, what happened is I have a good friend of mine, Glenn Bray, who I decided at an early age that I wasn't going to be a, really a collector. I'm just I'm not that good at it, and I didn't really have the money. But my friend Glenn was absolutely perfect at collecting. You know, he, he got every comic ever put out by EC when we were still, like, in junior high. He, later years, he got most of the art from the Zap comics, you know, and he became friends with all the artists. So he used to really be good at finding things, and he found Spike's original suit. It was authenticated. It was at an auction. So he bought it at an auction and then got it to me because I was the only one. For some reason, several people tried to put it on, and I was the only one that fit which was a little weird because if you read about Spike, apparently he, he, had, he had weird shoulders. He was kind of emaciated, so there's padding in the shoulders to fill out the suit, but it fits me like a glove. And I, and I, used to, I don't wear it very much anymore because it's a priceless artifact, but I did wear it on the John Stewart show and on the Jonathan Ross show in England, I believe. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you see me wearing it in certain key appearances over the years. Johnny Legend, any connections to Frank Zappa, Gilligan's Island, or F Troop? 
Let's see. Nothing with F Troop that I can think of. Uh, Gilligan's Island, I was a Bob Denver fan, and when I did a show called Incredibly Strange Wrestling, I was hoping, because Bob wasn't doing that much in the later years, I had a wrestler I created called the Great McGilligan, who was a wrestling magician, and I wanted to bring in Bob Denver to manage him. And the thing with him is he not only did magic tricks in the ring during his matches, but his fatal flaw was he makes the referee disappear just before he gets his opponent pinned, and then there's no one there to count the pin. So he doesn't win the match. That's my connection to Bob Denver. Uh, also, look up the Far Out Space Nuts if you want to see the weirdest thing Bob Denver ever did. Frank Zappa, I was lucky enough to spend an entire evening at his house once in the late 60s. Uh, and that was about it with him. I, uh, I had a friend of mine who was a songwriter. We played him some songs. We talked all night. It's funny because he turned out to be, I guess a lot of people who were close to him, knew that he was kind of a right-wing kind of guy. At heart, I mean, he was making comments like, if these people want to see their government really fall apart, just let some of these left-wing liberal Democrats in running the country. Uh, Stuff like that kind of shocked me a little bit, you know. But he was a pretty nice guy. He had no problem. We just spent the entire evening at his house. I never really spoke to him after that. And I did become, to this day, I'm very good friends with Ray Collins, who was the other end of the spectrum, you know, the lead singer from The Mothers. I met him back then. I picked him up hitchhiking one day, and I couldn't believe here's Ray Collins hitchhiking out in the middle of the street, right, when he was just becoming famous. And we've remained friends to this day. Uh, and he's one hell of a guy, i got to tell you. Johnny Legend, you've also put out quite a few nudie exploitation movies, or you've played them Absolutely. or released them. Have you ever found any of the women in the movies, like they ever come up to you and said, hey, that was me, I want some royalties. Did you ever meet Betty Page? No, I never got to meet Betty Page. I got very close to it in the 90s. Uh, for a br- very brief time, I was distributing the 35mm versions of Teaserama and some of her films that had come out on something weird. And I had the 35 prints, and I was showing them in movie theaters and doing a live mock burlesque show with them. You know, we had a few strippers and, and some comics and things like that, and I was showing them at Landmark Theaters, mainly the New Art in, in, in uh, West Los Angeles. And I knew people that were close to her at the time. Uh, the guy, you know, Dave Stevens, who did The Rocketeer, and a few of these people were still very close to her. And at one point they were saying if I was going to have a screening in a screening room, she might want to come and see it actually. It wouldn't be in a theater, but it would be in a screening room. And so I came very close a couple of times to actually, she was very reclusive and wouldn't really deal with anybody. And she was suing people kind of left and right for without, she, she got some very bad advice from her, the manager who was around her at that period of time because she was suing people for no reason as opposed to suing people for a good reason, you know. Uh, but I got very close to meeting her, and I never did. Now she's no longer with us, so I felt bad about that. But I did what I could. I tried to meet her, and it wasn't easy. How about some of the other women from the exploitation movies? Have any of them contacted you? Do you know what I've happened to them? I've run into several over the years. It kind of goes by the name. Uh, you'd have to give me names or whatever. I mean, I've done a lot of these, uh, you know, these what I call has-been conventions. I use that term in a fond sense. Well, a lot of old burlesque people, Playboy pinups, uh, Scream Queens, everybody who's been in and around that part of the business going back to the 40s and 50s and like that. Um, and I've made a few of these films myself, so I do know a lot of the Scream Queens going, you know, from the 60s on, and uh, a lot of the actresses that have been in different films, but uh, I, I can't think of any of these, uh, the ones that you're particularly talking about, if, unless you gave me a name or whatever. There's that one actress who co-starred in uh, 
uh, what's the one with Robert Clark? I'd have to, now I'm forgetting the title of the movie, but, uh, she was, she was around in quite a few of these things. And Robinson, who was, you know, a, a bona fide star from War of the Worlds and that, dra- the Dragnet, the movie, and a whole lot of other things. She's been a really good friend of mine since, uh, the 70s. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to be a case by case thing. I mean, some of these really famous ones I, I don't believe I ever met, but, uh, I sure wish I had. <laughs> Johnny Legend, and winding up here with Johnny Legend, live on an Nerdwater Human Serviette radio show, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If anybody wants any information more beyond talking to Johnny Legend live right now, they can contact you, Johnny How again? Go right to my email address. Just send me an email at johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com. If you look me up on Facebook, it's just under Johnny Legend. You'll see photos on my wall, and I think my email address is repeated there, and you might see my DVD blog. You don't have to friend me to uh, look at my wall. As far as as I know, you can go on there and uh, look at a few of the things I'm up to, but feel free to email me and ask me any questions, and I will answer, and I'll I'll get you information if you want on everything I've got out. Most, you know, most of my DVDs from the last several years are out of print now, and uh, I, so I'm the main source of them. You can look them up. You can buy them individually on Amazon and eBay, but it costs you a small fortune, and I have all of them, all of the, the stripper-type uh, exploitation ones you're mentioning, House on Haunted Hill, My Breakfast with Blassie with Andy Kaufman, and the 20 or 30 new ones I've made recently, TV Noir. I've got everything myself now. Uh, so that's it. I'm the, I am the source. I am the guy that's got it all. Johnny Legend, Man on the Moon, the movie, you were in it. Yeah. And I guess what I was wondering is, what did the respected Milos Forman, the director, what did he think of your movies like Breakfast with Blassie? Um, I think he actually liked Breakfast with Blassie, uh, strangely enough. Uh, Milos and I got along very well. In fact, uh, it's very strange because the day I met him, he acted like we'd been friends for years. Uh, we were going to a party at Danny DeVito's beach house, and uh, we all got in. We all parked at one place and got into a bus or something to go the rest of the way. And Milos suddenly came running out like a little kid. Johnny, Johnny, oh, we got to get pictures. We got to get pictures. And he pulled out a flash camera and we posed for several pictures. And all through the filming of the movie, every time he got a few minutes, he'd run over to me and pull out a, a camera. I must have taken like 500 pictures with him. And I'm hoping someday, if I if I ever get back in touch with him again, I'd like to see a few of the shots because we'd we'd I'd go to screenings after we filmed the movie and he'd be seeing me in the parking lot and go johnny we've got you know i'd be standing there with jerry lawler and people and uh i mean it was kind of weird the night of the riot you know the night they were recreating the lawler kaufman scene from memphis that were the night where lawler put uh kaufman in the hospital and all that and they recreated that in the film and they had and, and they took carrie to the hospital because lawler attacked him again and they had to let two or three thousand extras go home for the night and Milos spotted me across the ring at the front of the Olympic Auditorium, and he started going, Johnny, Johnny, oh, and he came running over, and we had to pose for some pictures. So as far as I know, I think he liked it. I know that uh, Stacey Scher and DeVito and all those people who produced the film were huge Breakfast with Blassie fans. In fact, uh, one night I walked a lot of them out to my car to get VHS copies for them out of my trunk. Because they hadn't had the new VH, they didn't have the new VHS version. So, and Kerry also was a huge fan of it. Because I got to be very close with Carrie working on the film, and we kind of, you know, because of my sister's involvement, and she worked with Carrie for the next 10, 10 or 15 years after that. 
as his personal editor and director. And so we stayed close with Kerry for, for many years after that. But yeah, he was a huge fan of Breakfast with Blassie. Johnny Legend, what about Andy Kaufman? Was he into punk at all? Like, he has a Mohawk at the premiere of your movie, Andy Kaufman, in a Mohawk. Right. Was he into punk? Uh, well, what happened there is, uh, not to sound uh, you know, too whimsical or anything, he was undergoing uh, cancer treatments and things at the time. That was in the period where he had the cancer, and most, almost, most of his closest friends didn't know about it because he had fallen in love with my sister, and he was kind of like a member of the family. So the day he found out about it, we, our, my immediate family knew about it before his parents even did. And he actually had that mohawk because he was covering up some of the treatments he was getting at the time. And everyone there said, oh, look, Andy's going into a punk thing now. Yeah, he's got that mohawk. He's doing a punk rock thing. But it was, it was, So it was actually a matter of necessity at that point. Uh, that was at the premiere at the New Art. Edie, uh, Edie Massey was there also, the Egg Lady, Robin Williams, and uh, Mary Lou Henner, and several of those people. And that's on my Breakfast with Blasi special edition, which you can get for me. came out in 2009, and uh, a great, a great, great uh, DVD, which covers the entire thing. The extras are very interesting, and I remember in a theater watching some extras that you presented. I think it might have been relating to Andy Kaufman. It was the Kennedy at Night clip. Why was that not used in Man on the Moon, the Kennedy at Night clip? I'm not sure which clip. I'm not quite sure which what you mean by that. There were a couple clips that you had that you showed that were not used in Man on the Moon. There were a lot of extra clips and stuff that were not used that you showed at this presentation that I saw. Do you remember any of the extra okay. clips? Where did you? Where was? Where was the presentation? And then I can tell you. It was was in, it in Vancouver? Yes, like about ten years oh, ago. Oh, okay, more. okay, yeah, okay. See, that was a little. That was a little old-fashioned avant-garde uh, uh, alternative cinema place where I did a week-long festival. Yes, in two thousand one, I believe the blinding light. And, yeah, I'm trying to remember what the Kennedy thing was because I put together two half-hour specialized sets of clips. One was about my wrestling career. One was about my entertainment career. And I don't remember where Kennedy fit into that. If you can tell me a little more, I can maybe tell you what why he was in there. We're speaking of John F. Kennedy. I think so. I can't exactly remember totally. This was just this wild thing. I can't really describe it. I guess I was just wondering about the extra clips that you bring. It also kind of made me ask: Have you seen Courtney Love recently at all? Uh, funny you should mention that. I haven't really seen her, so to speak. Uh, around 2000, what year would have this been? I'm trying to remember. I think this was more likely 2000, uh, let's see, seven or so. I was in Hollywood staying briefly at a motel. I stay there at occasionally, uh, between apartments. And I was going to a place called Bordner's. It's a famous, uh, restaurant bar in Hollywood, uh, that a lot of the old showbiz people frequent. And they used to have good food there. And I was in there one day, and this girl came walking in, looked like she kind of had come in off the streets, and she sat down at the bar a couple seats away from me, and I was kind of looking at her, and I said, and I said, boy, I said, you know, if she, if she cleaned up a little, she could probably get by as a, as a court, as a perfect Courtney Love lookalike. You know, I didn't say anything to her, cause she just, she was acting kind of sloppy and a little stone, and then she went out of the bar, and the bartender looked at me, he was a friend of mine, he said, I hate to tell you, Johnny, he says, that actually was Courtney. And I said, oh, my God, because if I'd known it was her, I would have said, hi, Courtney, I will, you know, because she played my sister in the movie, and I was with her on the set, and I would have said something. But I literally thought she was a street person who happened to just come in the bar and looked a lot like Courtney Love. 
So that's the last time I saw her. I've had no real reason or occasion to run into her since then. Johnny Legend, what's Quentin Tarantino up to now? And also, beside Tarantino, are there any other Hollywood stars that get into it as much as he does, just like you get into it? Oh, I'd say so. Uh, Eli Roth, who's a friend of both of ours, he's completely into that. A lot of people I know are completely into the scene from top to bottom. Um, It's hard to just conjure up names out of a hat, you know. Uh, Quentin, I'm not, I, you know, you have to keep checking. Quentin's always got about 20 projects going at any given time. I go to IMDb, and he's got like 20 things in pre-production, in-production, post-production, and then he does cameos and films and things like that. And uh, I usually, with Quentin, I just run into him from time to time at different events. I've never actually tried to call him on the phone or anything. Believe it or not, we put out a movie together in 1996, but I've never formally called him or emailed him or anything because I just run into him like at Eddie Brant's out in the Valley or at the Egyptian Theater. Last time I ran into him there, David Carradine was still around, and he was there with him. And uh, just at you know, different film events and things is usually where I run into him. One thing I can say that I'm very proud of, because Quentin verified this for me, uh, he had the Teenage Cruiser soundtrack, you know, the original vinyl version that came out on vinyl back in, in the early 80s, maybe it was late 70s, and he, he told me the last, the last time I saw him that he listened to that every single day for over 20, 25 years until the grooves wore out completely, and he, was, he didn't know what to do. He said, I can't listen to you or Billy Zoom, or, but, he, but he actually took a song from the Cruiser soundtrack, the Charlie Feather song, and put it in, in Kill Bill, one, either the first or second Kill Bill. And he admitted to me that he got it right off the Cruiser soundtrack. And I got another vinyl copy and, and brought it to him at the premiere of Inglorious Bastards. Because, you know, he acted like he didn't have any recourse. He was going to have to go the rest of his life without the vinyl copy of Teenage Cruisers. So, a very uh, interesting, eccentric character. Eli Roth is unusual, too, because with the day I met him in 2003 on the set of 2001 Maniacs, he got down on his knees and started bowing to me. And he said that My Breakfast with Blassie was his favorite movie of all time. And then years later, he told me one day that he'd watched the Cruisers trailer for 20 years and had it memorized. And he started reciting the entire trailer to me. And it's an eight-minute trailer, including Hot Rocks and the songs that are in the trailer. And then he said, I, I just found out that you made that movie, too. I can't believe you made Breakfast with Blassie and Teenage Cruisers. He was, he was like, flabbergasted. Joe, so, uh, that's about the best thing I can tell you about these people and certain things that are going on. Well, lastly, lastly here, Johnny Legend, and thanks again for speaking to me, Nardwar to Human Serviette, on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. We are with Johnny Legend, the rock and bully Ross Butan. Now, Johnny, one ad that you've talked about is an ad from Bozeman, Montana. Like, you showed ads from weird places, like from Bozeman, Montana. Where do you find a lot of the ads? Do you find them in places like Montana? Is any of your stuff in the Smithsonian? Has the Smithsonian uh, no, asked for in the Smithsonian. I'm not sure what the Bozeman, Montana. Was that just uh, was that like a little uh, old trailer that showed in theaters in the old days or something? Yeah, like an ad, and it mentioned Bozeman, Montana, that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, see, a lot of those things that I used on... Uh, Oh, I used them in my, in my going back to my Rhino videos, uh, you know, in Sleaze Mania and, and a lot of those, I would use old bumpers, they call them, where local, uh, you know, local merchants would put together their own ads and show them in theaters and drive-ins, and they would list the merchants, Usually, especially around Christmas time. Some of those Christmas ads would list 30 local merchants from Bozeman, Montana, and places like that, or they had used cars, and some theaters had Jalopy Night, that might have been it. Uh, 
so a lot of cities like that are listed in those old bumpers, and I still show those in theaters and like that between movies. But uh, those are priceless old, you know, old commercials before television existed. How about the Smithsonian? Has the Smithsonian ever called? Do they have any stuff out there that you want to get a hold of? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think uh, you know they seem too high, hot, hoity toity for me. I mean, they're you know they're kind of up there uh, in the stratosphere, so I don't uh, mess around with the people like the Smithsonian. I'm not sure what they would have that I would want. So, well, you're you're Johnny Legend, the Smithsonian of smut. That's what you are, right? Yeah, that that's me in a nutshell, in a in a smut shell. And uh, hopefully, I think before we go, we're gonna are we gonna do this again uh, same time next week or something similar? We'll continue on every week until we got all the questions answered. There, Johnny Legend. And lastly, okay, here well, good. that means we've got two thousand years to do it. Uh. <laughs> uh, lastly, Johnny Legend, just gonna play what you talked about at the top of the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show Pipeline, the vocal for Pipeline, Johnny Legend, backed with Mexican Love, and I'm also gonna put in there. A track, No Escape. What can you tell the people about Pipeline Vocal? I know you kind of mentioned it. Then also, No Escape. And also, I wanted you to mention, if you could, a little bit about Russell Kwan of the Mummies when you first met him, because you did some Christmas in Acidland with him. And also, would like to get a Deke Dickerson update for you, Johnny Legend, for the people. Are we going to do all that next week, hopefully? Uh, maybe right now in the next 30 seconds? Thirty seconds, uh, Russell. I've known for years. We were doing shows together in '91 and stuff, but we just formed a band up here together in the last couple of months with his band, the Chuckleberries, and we do Pipeline Live. In fact, if you go to my wall on Facebook, you'll see a link to a Christmas special we just did where we do Pipeline Live with with Russell and the rest of the Chuckleberries. Uh, I was with Deke at the Ponderosa Stomp, and we did a about a forty-five minute concert there that just blew everybody, including me, uh, uh, through the wall. I had no idea it was going to come out that good. And he, he kind of got me going doing my version of Pipeline again. Now, the version you're going to play, like I said, uh, it's, it's the, the problem is it was something we did very quickly at Johnny Bartlett's back in the early 90s, and he had never recorded vocals in his studio before. He had the Phantom Surfers, and he had only recorded instrumentals, so that was the first time he ever recorded a vocal, and I did one take I thought was a, a test. You know how when you're testing the mics and you do, a, you do a warm-up vocal? And he thought it was so good, he said, oh, I can't erase that. If I erase it, I'll lose it. And he went ahead and used the first one I did, which to me sounded like I was in another room with a band next door playing Pipeline, just trying to sing along with it. And uh, years later, I went back in the studio and did the version that I consider the proper version that I still haven't gotten out yet. I would like to mention, by the way, real quick, I have both of my CDs right now, which are out of print, Rockabilly Bastard and Bitchin', which is my Sergeant Pepper. And I don't know if you've looked at Amazon, but as of today, Bitchin' is selling on Amazon for $189 which is pretty astounding. Uh, my other one, is Rockabilly Bastard, is selling for 29 and the only other place you can get them is from me. So contact me, like I said, johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com, and you can get both my CDs for, for, for pennies, pennies on the dollar, very little. And also we're going to hear No Escape, too. That's one of my best original songs that I wrote that uh, people have joked with me over the years because the Seeds also had a song called No Escape, but this isn't to be confused with the Seeds song, although I could go on about Sky Saxon at very great length. 
but this is my version of No Escape. It was featured very uh, briefly in a movie called Bugbuster that I co-starred in with Randy Quaid, and I also sing I Itch Like a Son of a Bitch, another one of my songs. I performed that as a country and western trailer uh, trash type of band in a bar, and that film also features Katherine Heigl in one of her earliest performances. A very terrible movie, but it does. Fe- I, there is part of No Escape in that film, and it's on my... Uh, my, my Rockabilly Bastard, Johnny Legend's Greatest Hits, Volume None. That's one of my early Rolling Rock recordings. Uh, one of my best songs, I must say, and I did write it, and I'm very proud of it, and it came out on Rolling Rock. And what, was there a third one in there? No, I was just going to say about Deke Dickerson. You mentioned Ponderosa Stop. Just quickly here, Johnny Legend. Sorry to keep... What am I keeping... What is, what is Johnny Legend up to today? What am I keeping you from? Oh, I've just got to run out and do a couple errands at places that close at 5 o'clock. That's all. What what places might those be? Any interesting, like Kinko's, or where does Johnny Legend go? Uh, well, yeah, I've got a printer that closes today, and he's got, then he's gone till Monday. And uh, I've got to go by the power company and uh, just a couple other things around here that, you know, I'm in a small town and everything shuts down, and a lot of this stuff closes at 5. Okay, just quickly so, uh, then, Deke... That's, Di- that's, what I, that's what I'm off to. Deke Dickerson. Deke Dickerson. What is he doing right now? Because a little while back he was recording with the guy who sang the Beverly uh, Hillbillies. What is Deke? Has he got any neat stuff? Oh, Deke, I look, I look him up on Facebook. He's just all... He's, he was just in... Uh, God, I'm trying to remember. He was just in Nashville or Memphis or one of those key towns for a couple of weeks, and he met a whole lot of people he hadn't met up with before, and he's, and he's on the road all the time. He's touring. He was in L.A. a week or two ago, sent me a message, and he goes home for a very brief period of time. He records all the time, and then he just hits the road again, and he's touring. Uh, he's, he's just a really busy guy. I mean, you can look him up on Facebook also. He's just really busy. I was very happy to catch up with him uh, for just one night in, uh, in New Orleans, actually a couple days in New Orleans back in September, because I hadn't seen him in a few years, because uh, he's so busy. And we've been playing off and on since uh, back late 80s, going into the early 90s. You know, we, we, he, when he first moved out to L.A., he was living in Redlands, and we started doing shows together at the Lingerie and in San Diego and places like that. And he's been around, uh, you know, uh, when we were first doing an early version of Incredibly Strange Wrestling, he actually wrestled on a couple of our shows at the DNA Club back in the early 90s, and Russell was hanging around there with the mummies and all that. So, yeah, there was a lot of lot going on. Well, thanks so much. And, and even more happening now. Well, I want to let you get back to your adventures, Johnny Legend. Thanks so much for phoning into the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. Anything else you'd like to add to the people out there at all before we launch into Pipeline, a vocal version. I think it's brilliant, despite what you say about the vocals. A vocal version of Pipeline. Oh, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I just, I'm just saying from a personal standpoint, I wish I'd gotten a better version done right coming out of the gate. That's all. Uh, you know, I think it is that brilliant. that it, And uh, I got no problem you know, playing the version you're playing. And the thing I just want to say to everybody is get a hold of me if you can, and just remember the truth will set you free because the best things in life are me. Well, thanks so much, Johnny Legend. Keep on rocking in the free world, and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. I'll talk to you soon. Almost, Johnny. <laughs> doot-doot-a-loot-doo. Bop-bop. Is that what you want from Yes, me? thank you! <laughs> <laughs> Just a pump and 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 p
Still listening to the Nardwar, the Human 
Serviette radio show. You just heard right there, Johnny Legend with No Escape. And before that, Johnny Legend with the vocal of Pipeline. And before that, an interview with Johnny Legend. To end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, have a couple things that were given to me. Thank you so much, Garaga, from Ottawa, Ontario, for sending me, and I will grab it from the back of the CITR studios. And if you hear right now, you can probably, well, if you listen closely, you'll be able to hear the chair of the CITR studios flow really nice to the end of the CITR studios. And you can actually enjoy this sound if you come out and volunteer for CITR Radio at room 233 of the Student Union Building of UBC. You too can become a DJ and interview people like Johnny Legend. That's me going across, back, and over. Yes, such fun being a DJ. Not only is it like putting your voice on the radio, it's also like playing with the stuff and going for rides in the studio. Right here, we have a release from Garaga, sent to me from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Thank you very much, Ottawa, Ontario's Garaga. And we're going to hear Road Out from this brand new LP that they've put out. A cover of The Eyes. So, Road Out by Garaga from an amazing vinyl record called Miss Universe. Then going to play something. Thank you, Jim. And Jim sent me The Pigs. And we are going to hear Ricky Don't Surf. And that's from the Rapid Pulse record label. If you're interested, just Google Rapid Pulse Records. They have an incredible selection of stuff that they put out. That's Jim who also does Underground Medicine. So going to play something by The Pigs, Ricky Don't Surf, something by Garaga, wrote out a cover of The Eyes, and also going to try to fit in something by Art Kenyon on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show, This Girl's Trouble. Keep on rocking in the free world. And here, right now, is Garaga. <laughs>
This is Barry Williams. I'm Greg on Paramount Television's The Brady Bunch. All six of us Brady kids... Maureen McCormick, Christopher Knight, Eve Plum, Mike Lookinland, Susan Olson, and me, Barry Williams, have put it all together. We're now the Brady Bunch singing group. We got a sound we hope you'll like. We're sending you the special advance copy, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Ready, gang? Satan! 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 This is John M. Bennett, and you are listening to 24 Hours of Radio Art on UBC Radio, CITR-FM 101.9. On Tuesday, January 17th, UBC Radio, CITR, presents 24 Hours of Radio Art, Plunderphonics, Experimental Music, Cut Up and Collage, Found Sound, Difficult Music, Spoken Word, Noise. Listen live at 101.9 FM or online at CITR.ca. can't do it. I can't do it. Well, why not? I don't know. I just can't. I simply can't. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, January 17th, UBC Radio CITR presents 24 hours of radio art, under phonics, experimental music, cut up and collage, bound sounds, difficult music, spoken word, noise. Listen live on FM 101.9 or online at www.citr.ca. Why not? Um.
to gobble it all up. So. I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, why not? I don't know. I just can't. I simply can't. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, January 17th, UBC Radio, CITR, presents 24 hours of radio.